There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Webb on the topic of alcohol and psychiatry. David is a medical doctor and an associate at Houghton House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Center. He has worked in the pharmaceutical industry and works as a medical writer. In recent times, he has published volumes of poetry, specifically The Saint of Travelers and most recently Saints and Liars, with both volumes being available at www.poetryofaddiction.com. David, thank you for making the time to join me to discuss a topic which has far-reaching implications beyond psychiatry. Before we dive in, I'd just like to provide a psychiatric perspective. Now, within the DSM-5, which is the fifth version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, there is a diagnostic category, category substance-related and addictive disorders. And here one finds a range of alcohol-related conditions, specifically alcohol intoxication, alcohol withdrawal, as well as a host of alcohol-induced disorders that cover a spectrum of psychiatric conditions, specifically alcohol-induced psychotic disorder, bipolar disorder, depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, sexual dysfunction, and alcohol-induced neurocognitive disorders. So one sees that the consequences of alcohol misuse comprise a wide range of psychiatric conditions. Now, having mentioned that you are an associate at Houghton House, I know that your role is that of a counselor, amongst other things, no doubt. Would you provide us with some background as to how you became involved at Houghton House? Yes, thanks, Christopher. Um, well, I, I was in clinical practice for a while, and I, I left and joined the pharmaceutical industry. And I had found life very challenging, quite difficult, actually. Um, I had a, a very difficult past, and I, and I grew up with very low self-esteem, low self-confidence. And I found um, that... Um, Life became easier if I could take the edge off it. And um, so I started drinking, and over the years it progressed, over a period of 20 years actually. I mean, it wasn't particularly bad until the last 10 or so. Um, but as a consequence of that, I ended up in rehab okay. uh, after trying a long time to get sober myself um, and many misadventures. Right. Um, the problem with adventures is that they don't seem like adventures <laughs> until you've had them. Right. Um, and um, I lasted 10 months the first time out of rehab. And, and very importantly, it wasn't that rehab wasn't helpful for me. It was incredibly helpful. I mean, when I sat down in group therapy for the first time, and, you know, there are three, what I, I, I believe are three main symptoms of addiction, which we don't talk about because we don't identify them. And one of them is this appalling sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you sit down in group therapy with other people who have the same difficulties as you, Look, we are all different, so we've had different life experiences. But if you suffer from a similar condition, the symptoms you're experiencing are the same, right? If you've got pneumonia, you cough, you get chest pain, you get fever, all of us get that regardless of where we come from. Right. The same thing with addiction. Um, so we manifest in, in similar ways. 
and to listen to other people's stories and to tell my story and realize that I'm not the only person in the world who's had these thoughts. I'm not the only person who's done these things. The problem with this sense of isolation is not loneliness, right? It's, an, it's a malignant sense of aloneness. There's nobody else in my world. Nobody else understands the thoughts that I'm having. Uh, nobody's having these thoughts. No one's done the things that I've done. So that's even within the context of family, friends. Absolutely. You feel incredibly alone wherever you go, you know. I know if, if, if 7% of us are addicts and you go to a party and there's 100 people there, why am I the only one lying at the bottom of the stairs? <laughs> right. Um, it's incredibly isolating. And, and there's a lot of shame and guilt that goes along with it too. And of course, I mean, I can talk about my guilt, but shame, uh, means that I've transgressed what you think is right and wrong, right? So I, I have trouble discussing that with you because you'll judge me for that. Right. Guilt, I can apologize for that. I'm sorry for that. But shame is a, is a very different thing. And shame really isolates us from one another. Um, Did you experience that shame after or whilst drinking? Yeah, of course, all the time. So even as you were drinking you were conscious of the fact that you were transgressing or you know at what point does social drinking turn into transgressive kind of drinking where you push beyond well i guess when it manifests in dysfunctional behavior i mean ultimately um you know you develop a tolerance and you start to drink more and more and more okay the other thing is we'll get onto this a bit later um but you you lose your ability to get high you lose your ability to get relief so reward for me is two things Uh, reward is uh, you feel better you feel more good right and you feel less bad and initially we use impulsively because uh, life is hard we're suffering in some way and so we drink and that takes the edge off it right we feel better and we feel less bad and when you feel high you feel you everything changes right this is not one part of the brain we often talk about that drugs feed into the reward center of the brain yes um but it's not the reward center of the brain it's the reward seeking area of the brain right reward is not one area of the brain i mean it changes the the way i feel um i feel lighter that feeling of walking through treacle that i get with depression starts to lift my legs feel lighter i become a better dancer everyone becomes better looking i become funnier um my emotions lift, that terrible feeling of hopelessness and despair uh, starts to lift from me. So this is clearly not one part of the brain, right? It's sensory, it's motor, it's uh, lower levels of consciousness that are under our awareness, our emotions, uh, for example. Um, so clearly the reward is not one area of the brain. But, but what it's doing is it's driving into the reward-seeking area of the brain. So it directs my attention to what my body feels it needs. Um, so I lasted 10 months after the first time I was in rehab um, and went back to drinking. How many years ago was it? A few. Okay. <laughs> um, right. And um, I went back to rehab, celebrated 60 days after that with a bottle of moderately good scotch. <laughs> right. Um, and then I sank into another year of almost losing everything. Um, things changed around for me, actually. I'd been to AA and I didn't like it. I only went to one meeting and, and for me it was a bunch of stuffy old men who just spoke about how difficult life was and how much they owed the tax man. Um, 
And it was a very false view of AA because I only went to one meeting. AA meetings are all different, you know. And I encourage people to go to as many as they possibly can when they start out to find the ones where they relate to the people who are there. So I think that's important because what you're basically saying is you've you got to find the right fit. Absolutely. Well, I was taken by the man who would ultimately become my mentor within AA. He took me to this meeting. It was a teaching meeting. It was a very large meeting. There were about 150 people there. And we were sure. reading through the AA text. And I... I, I was still drinking at that time. Out of respect for him, I didn't drink until after we met on those days, actually. Um, and I looked up and I realized, and this was an incredible turning point for me. It was a, yeah. Um, I realized I was in a room full of 150 people who were learning to live differently, who were learning to live differently. You see, rehab, the problem with rehab is I didn't know what to do with I left. And now for the first time I realized that if I'm going to live differently, and I mean, now when I look back, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? If you've been living your life in a particular way, dampening down your emotions, never being able to feel anything when you face problems or decisions and, and, you know, now you have to face the bad things that you've done and the consequences of that. Uh, and, and, and you dampen that down as well. And of course you're addicted to it. So, you know, and physically dependent on it. So right. there are many reasons why it's very difficult to stop. But what I realized was that if other people could learn to do it, I could learn to do it too. And the second thing I realized was that I was not a failure up until now, that I hadn't been able to stay independent of alcohol because you can't fail at something you don't know how to do. That's interesting. Well, if you're going to learn to yeah. mow the lawn, right, someone's got to show you how to unlock the shed. Right. Right. And so I think that, you know, there's this abstinence model. So essentially you're either abstinent or you're not. If you are, you're on the right track, and if you're not, you're not succeeding in that sense. So, I mean, you have some thoughts on this idea of, of, of abstinence as an absolute requirement for recovery? Well, um, yes, I do. And um, there are other issues that are related to that. For example, in, in some of the medical literature I mean, in the States, there's a big debate as to whether people should be called addicts or not. You know, It's not politically correct to call them addicts because well, DSM, there's stigma attached to that. Yeah, DSM certainly stays away from addict, although the sort of broad category has got the word addiction right, in it. Right, and an addict means nothing, doesn't it? I mean, everyone's an addict these days. I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted to CDs. I'm addicted to playing tennis, you know. Um, so it's lost its meaning. But in my view, especially with the people that – we see by the time you get to rehab, it's, in my opinion, it's most likely that you're an addict. Not always, because not everybody who uses substances, and certainly, particularly alcohol, actually, is necessarily an addict. I mean, if you look at substance use disorder, the way it's defined in DSM-5, and right. it's a very clinical and, as you said, dry, dry. It's very uh, dry. way to yes, characterize cause, somebody. Cause just to say that I haven't said that, but we were chatting before. Yes. Where, you know, I'd said it's, it's just very dry, and I think a lot of the conversation we're having now is giving us a lot of the richness. Well, it lacks humanity, yeah. doesn't it? It's, it's, it's very cold. So, I mean, what they look at, they have four categories, right? So the first one is impaired control. So you use more than you intend to or for longer. You try to cut down, but you can't. Um, you spend a long time looking for it, recovering for it, taking from it. You have craving. Um, and there, and craving is another word, by the way, which is very difficult to define. There are lots of forms of craving, right? Um, the other thing is you have social problems, so you can't fill your role in the family and work, uh, at school perhaps. Um, people are angry with you despite your using and you carry on using. 
you have risky behaviors, you put yourself in hazardous situations, ask people, you know, at the rehab, who has not driven the car drunk or high? And there'll always be one or two people who put their hand up. And the next question is obvious, right? Have you got a license? And they right. say no. So, I mean, we, we all do that, you know. This use of the term addict or addiction, I mean, do, do, you think it's, do you think it's overly critical or pejorative? Not at all. So you're comfortable with no, that? No, if someone's not an addict, don't call them an addict. Right. I mean, the fourth category in the DSM-5 is the pharmacological effects of drugs with withdrawal and um, tolerance, right? Now, I mean, that's misleading because uh, some drugs have that, but so do medical treatments. And also that's some true. drugs like um, uh, mushrooms, what, what, psychedelics. Psychedelics, yes. Um, they, they don't have those, right? No, they don't. And it's supposed to be non-addictive too, but I met a, a chap the other day who had, had been admitted to rehab because he – his use of mushrooms have become problematic. So I, I, I think that addiction or an addict is the person, not the substance, right? So nothing is actually addictive. I mean, there's this very famous story of the people who came back from Vietnam and they were addicted to heroin. And the vast majority of them, once they were integrated back into society and they were back able to form relationships and get a sense of meaning and be of value in the community with help, that's very, very important with help because you are physically dependent. Anybody who uses certain types of substances for long enough, even mm. normal medicines, right, uh, will become physically dependent on those if they use them for long enough. And you need help to get over those withdrawals yes. because your body starts producing the chemicals that you're artificially putting into your body. So if you stop taking those drugs and your body's not producing your normal substances, hormones, neurotransmitters, whatever they may be, um, you're going to – not function correctly. So you're going to go through some form of withdrawal. So it's the negative consequences of being off the substance that keeps you on the substance. Many of them, yes. Because sometimes the withdrawal is not so bad, right? And people yes. have different experiences of withdrawal. But I mean, um, one of your previous guests, Sh Shakir Soldoka, yes, yes. was talking about um, this uh, form of heroin that um, people take, which which is very short-acting and has appalling very painful side effects if, if they're not taken and regularly. And they stay on it in order to eliminate those side effects of not being yeah. on it. So if you look at substance use disorders for the DSM-5, right, if you've got two or three of those, you're mild. If you've got four or five, you're moderate, moderately severe. If you've got six or more, you're, you've got severe substance use disorder. But um, You're talking about the symptoms. Yes. Yeah. Um, for me, um, that – the, the people who have substance use disorder is a massive, diverse group of people. All of them are different. I mean, you can have some of those symptoms or none of those symptoms. Not even people who are addicts and been hardened addicts for years have all of those symptoms necessarily. Right. Um, so they're all different. And many people, the vast majority of people who use alcohol, if they're given a good enough reason to stop, their family's going to use them, they're going to lose their job, there's the legal problems, for example – or they just identify that it's become a problem, they can't control it, they can stop and they can either cut down and go back to regular, normal, or maybe not regular, but normal drinking, right? Reasonable. Reasonable. <laughs> so that, you, word, yes, so that you don't become dysfunctional. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, functional drinking. Yes, functional drinking. Say, yes. um, so you actually feel that in order to deal with alcoholism or alcohol excess, that it is possible to achieve a level of 
reasonable well, some people, functional I mean, we drinking. Need to take a history from these people and find out exactly what's happening, right? Um, so what you've got is a large population of people who are just who, who use a lot of alcohol, right? right? So we call that hazardous drinking, right? Okay. It has a potential to, to cause accidents or impair their health. Uh, then you've got people who've got sort of more moderate to severe substance use disorder. So those are people who are using more alcohol. It's beginning to cause more of those symptoms we mentioned, affect their relationships and their ability to work. They're getting into legal scrapes. Um, and many of those people, again, will be able, if they're given enough help, will yeah. be able to cut down or stay abstinent because for many people it's not that important. But there's a small group of people, and this is the group of people that I would refer to as addicts, and that's why I identify as an addict, who have a lot more trouble staying sober, have, right. staying independent of their substance. We keep on going back to it, um, and there are there are reasons for that, but I believe they must – and the problem with this group, Christopher, yep. is that – when you see a larger group of people who are able to control their drinking or remain abstinent, and then you see this very small group of people who can't, it's very easy to characterize them as weak-willed or not trying hard enough. And I don't believe that those people are the same as the people who can have one glass of wine at lunch. So I'm understanding that you particularly and others maybe, have a more flexible understanding of what constitutes recovery so that recovery is not seen as all or nothing. Yes. It's, 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 it's on a spectrum yeah. of your ability to consume ultimately alcohol if you cannot be completely abstinent in a way that doesn't render you dysfunctional. Would that be – a reasonable understanding of, 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 of what I think you're Some saying. Some people can cut down. Addicts can't. Okay. So Addicts you're making, need to you're remain making abstinent. Dis- right. Because uh, for me, one sniff is… That takes you all the way. Yeah. So for I was going to say though, half a bottle, but… <laughs> <laughs> well, I say all the way. That's as far as you go. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that's an important perspective because I do think that the general understanding is it's all or nothing. You're either yeah. abstinent… Or you're not okay. Absolutely, there are two things that one of the one of the and of course there may be some who don't agree with you. Yeah, I would imagine that's okay. No, I'm I'm just yeah. speculating. I mean, do you find that no, there's a lot of there's a lot of different opinions right. uh, amongst the people who go to AA? Right. There's a lot. There's a huge uh, difference in opinions of professionals who work with addicts. Would you say that your views are Outlier views, or well, no, actually there is a fairly broad consensus that that's not an unreasonable position yeah. to take, but there are of course those who say absolutely not, it is all or nothing, and there are others who have a more fluid understanding of what right. it means. I don't think my views are outliers, but they're okay. certainly not necessarily shared by everybody. Okay. Uh, I do think that one has a very different perspective of it when you've lived it. Because yes. uh, you have an appreciation as to your own experience and what you feel is going on in your head. Um, and also, when you look at the neuroscience of it, you know, it plays directly into this, what we've been talking about. So, for example, there are three, three, um, changes in the brain, or not necessarily changes, but uh, some of them are areas that have not developed properly, right? If you have adverse childhood experiences, so, um, it's very topical now. Yes. I mean, a lot of conditions are being ascribed to many adverse- addicts have that, right? Many, many addicts, uh, it stems from 
difficulties during childhood. And there's a reason for that. Right. It's because, and, and we don't think of this, right? You, one of the big disappointments in my own life was that I, when I was a child, I looked up to adults. And then when I became an adult and I realized I just dragged the other children along with me. Right? <laughs> um, that's quite disappointing. But um, we don't think that you learn, you learn wisdom, you learn adult thinking. And most, many of us don't learn that, right? So when we look at what we call executive function, right? This is the area, the thinking areas of the brain. Right. Um, which are very, very important. These are all learned to be able to identify the emotions you're feeling, to be able to regulate those emotions so you don't fly off the handle and become aggressive and hit someone when you're angry, that you can regulate that and talk to people and form healthy relationships, to be able to self-regulate so that you don't give up when you're feeling disappointed or um, frustrated in what you're doing, that when you feel like a drink, you think, well, I've got to pick up the kids from school later on so I won't have one. That's self-regulation, right? So there's a lot of learning absolutely, in the recovery process. Sure. So – other areas of executive function, motivation and perseverance. If you grow up with adverse childhood experiences and you grow up with a low self-worth, right, if you are not giving the, given the nurturing that you should get as a child, you don't say, oh, well, my parents aren't giving me the nurturing, right? You, you, you develop this sense, well, I'm not good enough or um, – I'm not worthy. I'm not of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be my fault. I'm not doing something correctly. This plays out in all sorts of behaviors. Um, so we, we grow up with, without this sort of sense of identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we grow up with the sense of – and this is one of the other big three symptoms of addiction – the sense of anhedonia, right? And the absence of Pleasure. hedonism, right? Drug, sex, and rock and roll, right? Okay, so that's going to make us so comfortable. Inability to experience pleasure. Absolutely. So anhedonia is an inability to experience reward. We don't look forward to anything anymore. Well, you don't look forward to anything, maybe ever, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't enjoy anything when you're doing it. You continually, you're just going through it. And I mean, in my own experience, I'd uh, endure things uh, with the anticipation that I'd enjoy them when I I remember them later. Right. It's like walking around with a video camera. Um, you're not going to watch it later. And this the anhedonia um, is, uh, as one of our colleagues calls it, the greatest thief of all because it, it really robs life of any sense of potential pleasure right. or pleasure when you're experiencing it. Um, and – so we never, we don't learn that. We don't learn to be motivated. We don't learn to persevere. You don't want to do anything. And there mm. seems to be no point in anything. We don't learn wider, more flexible thinking. So we don't learn planning and time management. We can't manage our lives properly. And all of these make our lives pretty chaotic and they play directly in to using substances. Okay. So that's why, um, it's very important to identify this. Not, but this isn't everyone's experience. Not everyone who al- identifies as an alcoholic looks back and says, I had a gammy childhood. But Many I of them say, I had a very nice childhood. But I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that the treatment or the rehabilitation is actually a very multi-layered process. It's never too late to In terms to learn. of understanding all of these issues yeah. that you're raising that kind of come together leading to the it's, outcome, which it's is never the, too late to learn. So most of those can be learned later in life if you've got the right environment and the people around you. The important thing about all of these is all of these are symptoms of alcohol use as well. 
spot. So it becomes a vicious cycle. And of course, there are many other things that are driving us into using, like, like psychological issues, depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. If you grow up with adverse childhood experience, you grow up with this terrible sense of hypervigilance, right? You're always on edge, loud noises. You're always looking around for people, aggression. You don't like to conflict. Um, so you you have this sense of heightened, we call it, um, Arousal, right? arousal. We call it arousal. Okay. We get heightened sense of arousal. Right. I'm mean, not talking about sexual arousal. No, I'm no, talking sure. about arousal of the nervous system, Correct. right? Um, stress is very important. Um, we often feel isolated. We have poor relationships. All of these drive us in to not uh, everybody. No, no, no. But if when you ask people, you know, who who have severe problems, some of whom may be addicts, some of yes. whom may not be. And you go back and you look at these things, you can usually identify yeah. at least some of these. Right? Everybody, by the way, who uses substances um, to a point where their life has become dysfunctional has one thing in common, and that's poor coping skills. Mm-hmm. Clearly, because otherwise you wouldn't go down that route if you didn't. Well, I think the whole issue of coping and coping skills factors in all of the things that you're talking about, yeah. ultimately. Absolutely. Which yeah. kind of brings me to the to the question around individual versus group work, because a lot of what you're talking about, I think is probably best dealt with within the context of individual therapy or counseling, whatever one might want to call it. But I think the, the, the group process is also very important as part of rehabilitation. What are your thoughts there? My thoughts are, I believe the group process is more important than individual therapy, but I think they're both important. But I mean, a lot of what you're talking about now, how does that play out in a group setting? Because I mean, we've just mentioned many issues. Yeah. Um, and I think that for whoever leads the group, they would have to be incredibly skilled in terms yeah. of picking up on these issues and being able to take it from the individual, translate it into how it impacts on everybody and turn it into something that is meaningful for the group yes. beyond the individual. So, so that's why I say I think both of them are important, but, um, the one, thing that is incredibly difficult two things actually a sense of hopelessness and a sense of isolation so those are the three big symptoms anhedonia not looking forward to anything not enjoying anything um, not being able to experience reward a sense of aloneness isolation and hopelessness sounds like depression well depression plays a large role i mean um many people use alcohol to self-medicate depression, but depression and anxiety are both symptoms of alcoholism. If you use alcohol, and alcoholism is another term that's meaningless, by the way. An alcoholic is somebody who you don't like who drinks more than you do, right? Um, well, the better <laughs> definition of an alcoholic is someone who hides their empties. Okay, yeah. right. Um, but um, y- yes, and, and using alcohol causes all of these psychiatric symptoms that people are diagnosed with. Alcohol causes depression, it causes anxiety, it causes post-traumatic stress. All, all addicts have post-traumatic stress. If they didn't go into alcohol use with it, it they cause it themselves, you know? What do you mean by that? that I mean that our memories don't change. Right? Or that you've experienced traumatic incidents or well, episodes? If, if it's what drives you in, you've experienced some sort of traumatic episode right. that you um, you need to dampen down that feeling, that memory right. of that. But we, we, if you use enough alcohol, right? If you're an alcoholic, you have accidents, you have bad relationships, you have all sorts of problems that keep coming back to you. Right. And our memories of those don't change, right? We, when we, we think of them, we play them back. Uh, they are intensely shameful. 
And that feeds into our emotion, which makes us want to dampen that down. So as I'm listening to you, I'm not feeling overwhelmed myself because a lot of what you speak yeah. about I can relate to from yeah. a professional point of view. But if you, if you, if you really start to look at everything that we've, that we've discussed, all of the issues, and then one considers what one has to overcome right. to reach a, a better place, not just as a sufferer, but certainly as somebody who counsels. I mean, do you ever have a sense of futility in terms of what you do? What are you, what are you seeing in terms of the people that you no, work with? I, I certainly don't. Okay. Quite the opposite. Um, I had a sense of futility when I was trying to recover. Right. Um, and how did you overcome that? Well, I mean, the, and first of all, understanding that it was learned, that I would need someone to teach me, that I wasn't a failure of not having succeeded. But most importantly, the third thing was that if I was going to learn to do something, I'd have to put some effort into it. Right? I'd have to put some work into it. Okay, so I think that's critical. Yeah, and I didn't know what to do when I left rehab, right? And I'll say to the people in the rehab, uh, I talked to them for over an hour, right? And um, nobody's sitting there jittery and shaking their legs saying, oh, I need some crack or I need a bottle of Johnny Red, right? No one's sitting there like that. And yet many of them also have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, ADHD. Most of them have been diagnosed with that, bipolar, all sorts of – the reason is because, of course, drugs cause all of those things. And um, we know there's a proviso of all of those diagnoses in the DSM-5 that you mustn't be on substances when you make the diagnosis. Drugs all drugs cause all of those things. Even if you're on meth, right? When you come down after seven days, you're depressed. Right. Um, so, so that's why I think the DSM speaks about alcohol-induced and they list all of the various right. so, diagnostic so, entities. So they're sitting there comfortably listening to me despite these things. And I just want to point out the fact that these things come out of, out of addiction. These are symptoms, right? Um, all of those things we mentioned about an executive function, mm -hmm. alcohol causes all of those. It causes depression. It causes hopelessness, isolation, anhedonia, poor self-worth, poor self-image, depression, anxiety, panic, post-traumatic stress, poor relationships. We don't manage stress well. So what you see is the things that drive us into using are the things that come out. It's a vicious cycle. So the first thing is if you want to break that cycle, you've got to stop. And that's why I like the rehab model. You know, Not everybody – agrees with that but what it does is it gives you a break it, it, it supports you through the withdrawal and enables you to stop so you're talking about um inpatient yes or okay. well, not necessarily not necessarily because outpatient programs can be very helpful too but what you are saying is that there does need to be a period of abstinence where you're away yes. from the substance which yes. could potentially be contributing to everything you're yes. experiencing the thing is that stopping is stopping is scary Life without drugs or alcohol is scary, mm. and that's one of the things that puts us off, right? People leave the rehab and they say, I'm really anxious leaving. And there's a, there's a reason why they're leaving, because they're leaving a different person that they came in. And when you're a different person, the consequences of your behavior, which is different now, change. And as the consequences of your behavior change, the people around you change, your relationships change, the, people, the way pe people relate to you and you relate to people and, and the way you relate to your place in the world changes. So you enter, you exit out of rehab as a different person into a different world. And that's how human beings react to something that's strange to them. They feel anxious. They're not anxious because they're an addict. They're anxious because they're a human being. Does the program or do the programs prepare you for that? Because as you've just said now, you, you exit quite different to how you entered. You're still you. 
Yes. But you're a different version of you. Yes. You're a substance-free version well, of you. Well, if you are uh, helped effectively, you will leave with some new knowledge and skills and an exit plan, a written exit mm. plan. Okay. Very important. So it's very structured. Yes. Um and you will also exit with some support. You don't, you don't just, uh, it's much more helpful to go out and have some sort of social support and professional support. But I just want to go back to when I say to people, what's happening in rehab, right? Why are you all sitting here comfortably listening to me? Yes. When, if you were to go home now, Within half an hour sitting on your bed, you would be popping down to the bottle store to buy a bottle of scotch. So something's happening there that's keeping people comfortable. So people what do you are think? not sitting there. So what do you think that is? Well, a number of different things. The first thing is, for the first time, there's a sense of hope. Now, a sense of hope because of you because leading the discussion we're or learning, because they're not alone? Because you see that you're not alone. You right. see you're not alone. Your sense of isolation is... Uh, Reduced. Diminishing, right? Um, you you see that there's a pathway. I mean, what I think is all you need to leave rehab is with is a bit of hope, right? Hope is this. Hope is that there's a different path to the path I'm on. You don't need to know where that path goes right now. Don't you think that's part of the difficulty is not knowing where the path goes? Well, if you are on a path and there's a hyena behind you, and if you stop, it's going to eat you. And there's a cliff in front of you, and you're going to fall off it. And there's an alternative path. Do you need to know where that path goes? Fair enough. Or are you going to take it? And you take that path in faith, right? Faith is this. Faith is just to do it without knowing. And in fact, we take that path where we are because it can only be better than the path we're on. The other thing is we can see people around us who have chosen a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to sit in here. I would say to the people, you know, there are people here sitting, oh, you're so lucky, you've been able to recover, you're not as bad as me, you don't know what it's like to be me. And I said, like, I'm sure there are people there thinking that, because that's what I used to think, right? right. And you don't think that because um, you're useless or a weak-willed wimp. You think that because in your prefrontal cortex – your thinking brain, you want to stop. You realize your life is falling apart. Mm. In your lower consciousness, your emotional brain, you don't want to stop. Your brain has learned that this is the way I cope with a difficult life. That part of the brain is anxious. I'm going out into a new world. What will I do when I can't dampen my feelings down with drugs and alcohol? So you've got this cognitive dissonance, right? I want to, but I don't want to. Mm. And that don't want to is far more powerful than the want to. But you have to make sense of these two conflicting thoughts. So I don't want to. I do want to. How do I make sense of that? I can't. So then? So when I, when I say to if you feel like you can't, it's okay. It's okay. Is that not encouraging a sense of, because I asked you the question about futility. Does that not engender a sense of futility that it's okay? No, I don't think so. Because um, if you are willing to give it a try, what I'm saying is acknowledge how you feel. Okay. I'm not suggesting that but if you, you don't feel like you can't, <laughs> you, you should feel like you can't because you can't. You can. That's okay. the whole point. And this is the thing. There's these stats that are bandied around, rehabs and AA meetings and NA meetings. Yeah. They have no basis in science, right? That I mean, I've been in rehabs where people um, actually say to the people, now look around you, one out of four of you will recover or one out of three of you will recover. It's an appalling thing to say to anybody because it's just not true. Because 
and I'm not going to use the word recovery, right? I don't know what recovery from alcohol means. What I'm talking about is that we can find a life that's worth living mm. where we don't need to dampen down our feelings. It doesn't mean we won't crave. It means that when we do crave, we know what to do about it. We can make sense of it. So what I say to people is this. Everybody, everybody can and will recover. Everybody can and will stay independent of their substance if they put some effort into it. So this is the issue, work. I mean, it's hard work. And it's harder for some people, and some people have a different journey. I mean, at what stage in my life would you have said, oh, you're useless, you're never going to recover? And how long do I have to be sober now before you turn around and say, okay, well, you're cured. You'll never go back to it. So do you ever speak of a recovered because people often speak of a recovered But that's alcoholic. why I don't talk about recovery, because I don't okay. know what that means. It's irrelevant, right? It's irrelevant. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. What we're talking about is finding a place where you don't need to. And what I will say don't to people… Don't need to drink. Yes. Um, is, um, you know, the medical profession, the one helpful uh, definition of addiction from the medical profession, I think, is they call it chronic relapsing conditions. It's chronic, it's ongoing, right? It's Mm -hmm. long-lasting. And it's relapsing. There are periods of sobriety and then there's periods of... And that's, for many of us, that's the story of our journey. Uh, On the way to remaining abstinent, we have periods of relapse. And even after long periods of abstinence, uh, some people will go back to using, um, to drinking. And um, it's not okay to go back to it because you could kill somebody else's child sure. this time. But if you've gone back to it, it's okay. And there's a very subtle difference there. If you've gone back to it, it's the natural history of addiction. Yes. As long as you get back on the path, back on, you get back to your support group, to the people who can help you. And I often see people… So basically we're talking about stumbling as opposed to falling. Well, I call it a lapse. Okay. Right? Right. As opposed to, I don't like the word relapse. That's very judgmental. And there's a sort of sense in some of the social groups that uh, if you relapse, your period of sobriety becomes irrelevant and you go back to starting again and you start counting again. Do you think that's true? It's absolute nonsense. Of course not. I mean, if you're on the road to learning to do something and you fail a test, you don't go back to, you know, if you're in matric, you don't go back to standard two, for goodness sake. Absolutely. We're in the grades now. That's right. So I, I wanted to. Oh, well, let's go back to the rehab yeah. when I say what's happening there because yes. we keep getting sidetracked. I right. haven't even finished telling you how I got into it yet. <laughs> um, is that um, so? There's a sense of hope, right? Hopelessness is this, right? My life is difficult. There's nothing I can do about it. Okay. But in fact, that's not where everybody is. They come to rehab because my life is difficult and I don't know what to do about it. And I'd like to do something. Absolutely. And there's a lovely, lovely realization in that difference because just knowing that I don't know. And sometimes we don't know that we don't know. Sometimes we don't know we don't know we don't know, right? right. The Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Um, is just but to know I don't know is a wonderful place to be because it means I can ask for help. Well, that means it's okay. Not so to know. The, this hopelessness starts. They're in a group of peers who understand them. They can talk about things. They can talk about their deepest fears, their deepest thoughts, knowing they're not going to be judged, that they'll find camaraderie there. People have had different experiences, but many of the experiences are the same. The symptoms are very similar of uh, the, those ones that I, I mentioned yes. just now. Um, we all suffer from those, right? 
Um, we can talk about those. And we don't identify those. People don't identify the sense of isolation, anhedonia, and hopelessness. But once you start bring them out into the open, we start talking about them and say, yes, that's – in fact, anhedonia is very common amongst everyday people. I mean, somebody wrote for me uh, uh, from America because they'd seen something I'd written and I mentioned anhedonia. He was an, an engineer in the States. And he wrote to me, he said, I'd, I'm not an addict, but I recognize this in myself when I read your, mm. your thing, you know. And he said, what do I do about it? Um, so, and when I give talks, you know, I mean, I've given talks to a, a number of medical conferences. People come up to me afterwards. They're not addicts necessarily. Some of them are, but no, not most of them are not. They're just people who are living everyday lives, you know. And, and these are medical professionals. Sure. Think we're supposed to be all together. Well, I, I'm so not sure. Just that to finish off, sorry, yes. <laughs> badgering you now. That's all but right. To finish off, why um, there's a sort of sense. There's a sense of hope. There's a sense of camaraderie. They're not surrounded by tech. That's very important. They're learning about themselves. Yes. They are getting to talk through these problems. Like you say, group therapy is important, but so is individual therapy. And then you can address the, the person and their, their Well, the particulars of their, the individual, because as you yeah. say, I mean, this is not a homogenous group. Yeah. So everybody has their own story and their own path. Very importantly, we learn that uh, we are a function of our genes and our past, but we and our future is not. Yes. And w it's very, very important, especially if you've had a difficult past, to turn around and face that past. For, and I believe there's one reason for that. It's not to blame. It is not to feel resentment. It is to validate who you are now. Because if I was you and I had your genes and your parents and your past experiences and your school and your education and your work experience and your experience with alcohol, I would be you. So it's inevitable that you would be where you are right now. And I'll say to people that this is exactly where you're supposed to be. This is what's brought you here. The gift of addiction, right? The gift of addiction is that everyone struggles with life, many people anyway. Um, and the wonderful thing about being an addict is that your life becomes so dysfunctional that you are forced to face it. And so that's an interesting positive spin. Yeah. Which I don't think is necessarily inappropriate because I do think that one looks for meaning in everything that one does. One finds that meaning and one moves forward. I wanted to touch on something now which is far more So just going back yes, to practical. I just which want to finish that off, that yeah. thought off. So what I say to people, so if we can identify what's happening here, this is what you've got to carry on when you leave here, right? Right. This is keeping you sober here and comfortable here. This is exactly. So we're talking about what's going on in yeah. the rehab yeah. setting. Yeah. What about the 12-step program? Because, yeah. I mean, if, 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 if we talk about alcohol, alcoholism, recovery, whatever you want to call it, rehabilitation, 12 steps comes in. Yeah. And I actually uh, printed the 12 steps because yeah. I'm, as much as I speak about them, I don't necessarily know them because I haven't been yeah. through that process or needed to go through the process to the best of my knowledge. Um, and I was just looking at, at, at the 12 steps and I, I, I was looking at them fairly critically, I suppose, mm. because I'm not sure that they are uniformly accepted as the sort of gold standard of recovery or rehabilitation or, or are they the 12 steps? They're one route. There's no one size fits all. They're suitable for some people and other people don't relate to them. Just like some people will relate to, well, AA and NA are 12 step groups. Right. Um, and, um, that's not for everybody. I don't think there are different routes to. So, so this first step, admitting powerlessness over the addiction. Right. So I must confess that I am a 12 step program advocate. Okay. Uh, it's what helps me. And the rehab that I work at is a 12 step facility. 
So uh, the people who wrote the AA, we call it the AA Big Book. It's the handbook yes. of recovery for uh, by AA. Uh, they were religious people, and so it's very peppered with religiosity. It remains from the 1930s. Also, some of the words they used are not used in the same way that we would use them today. So it's important to see it in that context. Well, I mean, the reference is always to a higher power, yes. but they don't specify. Well, I'm not a religious person, and I, I relate to these steps. I think that the principles in these steps would do anyone well if they were to, to implement them in their life. So let's have a look at that. The first one uh, says we admitted we were powerless um, over, over the alcohol. Yeah. Our lives had become man- unmanageable. That's what step one says. Okay. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. The best definition I've heard of an alcoholic, so someone – who, let's say, in the true sense of the word, someone who's addicted to alcohol, is the AA definition, and it's this. Uh, you may be an alcoholic if you cannot leave it alone. So you try and leave it a few days or a week. You can't. You keep coming back to it. And when you start, you can't stop. Um, and so what this is saying, and this is these steps have been heavily criticized by people, and, I, and when I read these criticisms, I often feel that they're based in a misunderstanding of what it says. This step is often criticized for saying an a- a- alcoholics have to admit they're powerless. It doesn't say that. It says we admitted, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that we, when we, we couldn't leave it alone and we couldn't stop. It doesn't say that we are powerless. This is completely fallacious. Of course, right. as a human being, you have enormous control over and influence not only over your own life, but the life of the, the life of people around you as well. You know, I often say to people, what do you have control over? And this is sort of like cliche paradigm, only my behavior. You know, that's absolutely false. And I say to them, well, did anyone ever ask you to stop drinking? And they say, yes. I say, who? They say, my mother. And I say, did you? And they say, no. And then I say, how do your mother respond? She was upset. I say, did she cry? And they say, yes. I say, how do you think your mother would have responded if you had stopped? They say she would have been happy. So, so do you think that you have only control of your own behavior and emotions? It's, if you don't think you have profound influence over the behavior and emotions of others, you only have to think back to the last time you had a drink. But mm. it does say our lives are unmanageable because our lives are unmanageable when we're drinking because we're drunk and our lives are unmanageable in between that. We can't manage our affairs and especially towards the end of your drinking, you feel ill all the time, you know? So I'm just touching on the higher power steps believing that a higher power can help, deciding to turn control over to the higher power, being ready to have the higher power correct any shortcomings in one's character and asking the higher power to remove those shortcomings. So, in fact, as I'm looking at the 12 steps and I'm picking up on the five that I had questions about, they all seem to come back to this issue of, of the higher power and handing over yes. and so, having so belief in. These were people who were quite religious and they mean God. Right. They use three terms in the book. They use the term God, they use the term higher power, and they use the term power greater than myself. I don't relate to those steps in a religious particular way. The way I would think of a higher power is aiming for a higher self, right? A self that transcends the uh, low levels to which one has sunk and um, uh, aiming for development of these executive skills would certainly be aiming at a higher powerful self. But the term that I think is far more helpful is a power greater than myself because um, a power greater than myself is exactly that. It's not me. So it, there are many things that are more powerful than myself. Just 
um, the, the power of being in a group of people who will support each other, the power of having a mentor and being a mentor, the power of finding meaning in your own life. These are all powers that are greater than myself. So, for example, we, we spoke about this the other day, you and I, when we yes. were talking about changing your behavior, right? If you change your behavior and you start implementing a more virtuous type of behavior. Yes. When I talk about virtue, I'm talking about when I when I talk about virtue, I mean a way to behave that relieves suffering. So when we talk about virtue, we're looking at things like patience, kindness, trust, honesty. Kindness, um, I think that's very important. Yes. And I think that um there's an article that you wrote recently called What Can We Learn From an Addict? Understanding that personality is not fixed can make a welcome change. And the, the gist of that article was in terms of speaking with somebody who was an alcoholic, that they needed to consciously change their behavior towards others. And we were speaking about acts of virtue, virtuous acts, yeah. kindness, and then experiencing how that was reflected back to them, yeah. how that made them feel. And so there was this whole virtuous circle of, of, of behavior, um, experiencing the response to that behavior, the emotion that evoked, and then the kind of thinking that said, oh, maybe that's a better way to be. And potentially in the course of that, not needing alcohol along the way. And so I think this, this, this idea, because you just mentioned kindness, brings me to, to that article and, and how what the alcoholic does influence how others are and that potentially shifts them away from the need mm-hmm. for alcohol. Your thoughts on that? Well, one of the, one of the reasons why the medical profession and society, or maybe not society in general, but one of the reasons to classify something as a disease, for example, is to remove stigma. There's a recognition that if there's a stigma, it's, there's a, it's a major barrier to treatment and to people to being integrated. And there's sort of sense that if we can characterize uh, addiction as a disease, then it will release the stigma. But let's be honest, alcoholics are not nice people. They're dishonest, they're dangerous, they don't look up to their responsibilities. So why would people want to be around somebody who's drunk all the time? Um, they're often aggressive. They're often abusive. Mm. The, the stigma is not going to go away. So, and, and this is all a consequence of their behavior. Now, the, the reason that I, I wrote that is because this old sort of self-help notion is that you just have to change your thoughts. You're as happy as you choose to be, which is absolute nonsense, of course, because it's part of your constitution. It's very difficult to change your thoughts. So those things work for people who don't need them. But for many people who have self-effacing thoughts, low self-worth, low self-confidence, very negative self-talk, it's not actually possible to change your thoughts. I don't believe so anyway. Um and that, that is one of the things that drives us towards be looking for things to dampen down that difficult life. So I think that your focus on behavior, which ultimately then potentially leads to change in thoughts. Absolutely. So yeah. if you change your behavior, the consequences of your behavior change. And now your, your sense of yourself in the world and your experience of other people and the way other people treat you uh, changes. And you, you live in a different world, so you get a different perspective of that. And slowly, because your experiences reinforce the way you think, don't they? Sure. And your emotions. Sure. So if your, your consequences change, your experiences change, slowly your perception of what's going on around you changes and your thoughts start to change. One of the things you see is all of a sudden the world is not such a scary place as is against me all the time. But if it is and I'm drinking to dampen that down and I keep being aggressive with people, I'm going to keep 
substantiating that in my sure. own head. So when we speak of cognitive behavior therapy, in some instances, behavior comes before cognitive. Yes, I believe so. So you, I don't think you can change your thoughts. You can't change your behavior by changing your thoughts, but you can change uh, your thoughts, thoughts by changing your behavior. Okay, but um, you have to think about that. And again, I mean, the different things for different people, but I mean, we're talking about people who have very negative thoughts. If your parents didn't nurture you and they were abusive and aggressive or you had a difficult child, what your parents and caregivers say to you before the age seven becomes that little voice in your head, right? Sure. So when I introduced you, I mentioned that you'd written poetry, and I thought it would be nice to uh, close out with a sample of that poetry. And uh, we'd spoken in advance, and we had settled on a, a poem, which is from your most recent volume, Saints and Liars. And in fact, it's the poem itself, Saints and Liars. So are you uh, in a position to, to, to read it to us? Yes. Thank you, Christopher. Okay. Um, this is a poem about one of those people we're talking about. Yes. Who has uh, low self-worth and doesn't realize um, the value that he has been to other people along the way uh, and has this profound lack of a sense of identity that comes from not learning to identify your feelings, right? not learning to identify your feelings so you never really know how you feel. And if you don't know how you feel, you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, you always feel separated from mm. others. Right. If you can embrace not knowing who you are, then you realize you're an individual with something to offer. And paradoxically, that makes you feel like you fit in. But if you, if you, you can't embrace that sense of a lack of identity, then you never fit in. And, uh, but all of us, regardless of how we feel, have a profound influence on the lives and emotions of those of around others us. And yes. the future of other people. Okay, so. Saints and liars. He woke up in strange places. You have never been yourself, she said. You are someone else's dream. He said, oh. She said, who are you? He breathed. I healed a mother. She had cancer. I gave her children hope. I helped an old man. He smiled through rotten teeth to say goodbye. A man whose daughter visited him every day said to me, Look, I drank only a tot tonight. I'll hold her hand. And I watched her hold his hand helplessly happy when he passed away. The yellow crusty lady cursed me when a breath was too much to expect and a delicate baby cried out of silence from a pool of his mother's blood. We smiled at that. I cut a boy and made him bleed and watched the pus flow, stain the arrogant plaster we removed and changed a day later when we knew he'd be okay, and I've never been myself. I remember, just recently, John came to me, just clean. Many years have passed, he said to me. I'm John. And all I thought was, through my clouded mind of years and years of not the life worth living, not John, not John, why not Abel or Micron or Dampton? or not any original name, just John. I'm here, said John. You lifted me. Thirty-two years ago, you lifted me out of my mother's blood, and I breathed, and you named me John. And my mother said, This is John, and you said, Welcome. I have a gift. He gave it to me. I lied, I said. I did what I was told. And now a broken soul held together, together by vodka and grief. I do not recognize the man, the one who says, I've never been myself. Though I saw him once, through a fleeting glance, fearful, hesitant, and timid, peering from the eyes of another. Hmm. 
I think that's a fitting way to bring our conversation to an end. I'm sure the audience will digest that as I have. David, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing professionally and personally. The aim of today's podcast was to provide a broader perspective on alcohol misuse and abuse that goes beyond, as we mentioned earlier, the somewhat dry confines of psychiatric diagnoses and diagnostic criteria, as well as to gain some personal insights from a fellow professional in the trenches. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.